0: come now to turn to God's Word in in the book of Job. We are looking at Job chapter 35 today. Uh, I will read this. This is a part of the speech of Elihu. I will also remind you, because I won't dwell on it too much in the sermon proper, uh, that Elihu is is not speaking with the same judgment that God gives on Job's words, that often what Elihu does is quote Job uh, in ways that don't bear out the meaning of Job taking his words out of context, even as, as the closest, actually, quotation that we have is chapter 21, 14, and 15. But if you read verse 16, you see that these are words that Job himself are condemning. Uh, but rather, instead of focusing on that, we will look at the right use of Elihu's words, his right instruction, and, and draw our doctrine from that. Before I read our passage, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come in the name of Christ and do so again. Uh, we come asking again for your Spirit. This time, as we consider these words that your Spirit inspired for our good and our instruction, we ask that you would give us the same Spirit that he might dwell within our hearts, that we might take it as intended, that we might hear your word to us this morning, and that we might be grateful that you speak to us, uh, that we might be submissive uh, to what you reveal needs correcting, and that we might take encouragement from your promises in it, that our lives might be to your glory, and that we might bear the fruit of repentance and trust and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Job chapter 35. Elihu spoke moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou sayest my righteousness is more than God's? For thou saidst, what advantage will it be unto thee? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? I will answer thee, and thy companions with thee. Look unto the heavens, and see, and behold the clouds that are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thy hand? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the Son of Man. By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed to cry. The oppressed cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. But none of them say, Where is God my Maker, who giveth songs in the night, who teacheth us more than the beast of the earth, and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven? There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Although thou sayest, thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him, therefore trust thou in him. But now, because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger, that Job knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain, he multiplieth words without knowledge. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord abides forever and His people said, Amen. Elihu, complaining about Job's words, complaining about Job's complaint of lack of justice from God. Job has never said in any words that his righteousness was more than God's, but Elihu takes it that any sort of complaint about his own innocency and this harsh treatment from God must reflect negatively upon God's righteousness and and his justice, uh, calls Job to consider what it is that we owe unto God and and why it is that God has not heard Job's prayer and why it is that God is not obligated to hear it and whether or not Elihu's uh, words... uh, fit the facts of Job's case, the doctrine in general is, is worthy to be considered because we get it in other parts of Scripture as well. And the first doctrine is, is that the Lord is not the debtor to His creation, that the Lord does not owe His creatures as if they could make Him indebted to, uh, to them. He transcends their ability to hurt Him are to profit him. Verse 5 through 7. Look unto the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. Uh, so he's, he's causing him to look at the, uh, the, the things that, that are kind of within reach. And consider them. And he's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. Uh, those things. What can you do to affect them? He's not even going to the stars. He's not going to the sun. He's not going to the moon. He's going to the lesser uh, heavens, the sky, and looking just simply at the clouds, which do sometimes settle down upon the earth in the fog in the midst. And he asks these questions about God, because there's a rhetorical leap here. He says, if thou sin, what do you do against him? If your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Now, we know that sin is the rebellion against God. We know that sin is lawlessness. We know that what we're doing is disobeying him. But in our disobedience, have we made him less happy? Have we made him less blessed? Have we taken away anything of his holiness or his perfections? No. There's nothing we can do to make the cloud other than the cloud. There's nothing we can do to make the sun other than the sun. There's nothing we can do to make the moon and the stars other than they are. I mean, it is a conspiracy theory that there are little machines that we can do to make the clouds go hither and down there. But it's ridiculous. But even if we're going to accept that, the things in the heavens, we can't affect or touch. We don't... We don't, there's a lot of things in our lives, there's things below us that we really cannot affect. How much more the Creator of all things is, in essence, impervious to our behavior? Our sin doesn't take anything against Him, it's part of the the ridiculousness of sin and rebellion against God, it's futile. We, we look at the devil and wonder at his futility. Why on earth did he think he could uh, uh, to, to succeed in his rebellion? We don't know the details of his particular rebellion, and it's part of one of the mysteries there, because you would imagine that the, the great powers, those powers like the angelic beings, would know better than we the imperviousness of God. Uh, to our meager actions. But also, if you look in verse 7, If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receives he of thy hand? If you're doing good and you obey. I mean, we think when we do somebody a good turn that they, we put them in our debt, do we not? Um, the, the employee, when he does his work properly, expects to be paid because we have benefited the employer in some form or fashion. Uh, We actually can help people, and there is a certain sense in which we often feel that that obligates us, not always materially, not always financially, but there is those bonds of gratitude and attention that that we owe one another because we can do each other a good turn, and we could do each other a bad turn. But just as we can't take anything away from God's blessedness and perfections, neither can we add to it. If God wouldn't be perfect, if we could add to His perfection, the the whole doctrine of absolute perfection means that God is uh, sublimely independent of what we are or what we do. And the conclusion then is that uh, these instructions then, uh, the, our obedience we owe to God and, and the, the sins that we sin against God uh, don't affect Him, but are rather given out of His mercy uh, for our good. We see it, but going back to the transcendence of God and His inability it's, it is oftentimes an occasion of great wonderment. Uh, David, in his last words unto the people of Israel in First Chronicles 29, 14, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thy own hand we give thee. When we make offerings to you and worship and praise to you, we're returning to you but a portion of what we've taken from your hand. And why then do you consider it? Because in and of itself, rationally considered, it doesn't improve you. And it's always an astonishment of God's love and mercy. In Romans eleven thirty five and 36, uh, Paul trails off his doctrine to give praise unto the Lord who hath first given unto him and it shall be recompensed to him again for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then why does he consider us at all? Uh, our, if you look at Psalm 50, Psalm 50 verses 8 through 13 reflects on this. It's a psalm of Asaph. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices, says the Lord, or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness of the, thereof. Will I eat the flesh of the bulls that you sacrifice or drink the blood of goats that you pour out? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the most High. and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. But there's something else going around than just a quid pro quo or a commercial activity with God. The praise that we bring needs to be out of gratitude and acknowledgement of His love, and without that... He's not benefited by the sacrifice. I would say even with that, he's not necessarily improved his being, but his relation to us is improved. Jesus says in Luke 17, 7-10, uh, he talks about the, the unprofitable servant. You, go, uh, you come in from the day's work, you tell your servant, you don't tell your servant, feed yourself and then feed me. You tell your servant to go cook me food. And you don't thank him for it either because that's his job. And Jesus says, when you have served the Lord and done all that he has told you to do, say, We are but unprofitable servants. Meaning that there is no such thing as the idea of works of supererogation. You cannot do more to the Lord than he requires of you because he requires of you the love of your whole heart, mind, body, and soul. And you can't give, no matter how much the coach would want you to, you can't give 110%. You only have 100% to give. And it's certainly true, and you and I both know, both, all of us know, that we don't give 100%. That we follow our own hearts and our own uh, uh, inclinations. Uh, we may be that right now that you're only giving half your attention to the Word of God and letting the other half trail itself into something else. Even when we're doing the best that we can do, we know in the heart of hearts that we're not doing what God has commanded us to do, that there is in every good thing that we offer unto the Lord that little bit of rebellion, little bit of selfishness, little bit of serving ourselves. God, by his grace, receives that in Christ as good done. But we know that intrinsically it has no inherent value of itself in Proverbs uh, chapter uh, 8, verse 36, says, But he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Solomon is speaking of wisdom there. The, the words are wisdom's words. That is ultimately the logos, the, the word of God that is speaking. And to sin against God is not to wrong the Lord, but to wrong oneself, and to violate that which he has called you to for your good. And that is why all sin is in the service of death. Uh, the language of, of the memes on the internet, the death cult, that uh, it, it is a death cult. Anytime sin and rebellion is seeking what it, what it can never succeed at, out of frustration and nihilism. And that's the nature of sin. Go down to Proverbs nine twelve. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. It doesn't improve the Lord, but if thou scornest, thou alone shall bear it. The point is, then, in verse 8, that, that when we are righteous or unrighteous, uh, we are conforming ourselves to the Lord. We all, it is a service that we give to Him out of our love. But that's why part, the other part of the law is like unto the first. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your, all your body, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The second one is like unto it. He didn't say the second one is below it, He said it's like unto it. Paul talks about when we serve one another in love that we fulfill the whole law. In Psalm 16, David says in verse 2 and 3, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extends not to thee. There's nothing I could do on your behalf, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Because I can't do you good, I will do good to those who love you and whom you love. It is part of our serving of God to serve one another. Because we're part of one body in Christ. The hand doesn't serve the hand. The hand goes and does something that the eye or the mind wants the hand to do, right? If you look at the way your body is knit together, and, and oftentimes, uh, the, if you just consider when the foot kicks the heavy dog out of the way, it doesn't really feel good to the foot, but it's good for the whole body that the dog is out of the way. It's just an example. It's serving the whole body. Uh, there are oftentimes things that you do that are uh, grueling, uh, but serve well. I remember it was a thing to say back uh, when we were in school. Uh, well, actually, later than school, but sacrifice the body, as, as what coaches would say when somebody was being kind of hesitant uh, and about accomplishing a goal, uh, and and they were just you were just to give yourself to it and to win and. Uh, and actually, that's, it's part of the joy of it. Is, is there, there's a certain sense of pain that leads to greater joy. And our, our, our work to one another is for the good of the whole. And therefore, through that work, we glorify God uh, who is loved by the church and who loves the church. So the first is that we can never be a debtor unto God, and rather His commands and His uh, prescriptions to us are for our own good and the good of our neighbor. Verse eight. But then that brings up the question, a question that Job himself asks in chapter twenty-four, twelve then why does God not show mercy to those that are oppressed and troubled? If he is concerned about our good and our well, why doesn't he deliver us out of every uh, uh, hardship and every uh, cross that we bear? Verse 9, by reason of the multitude of oppressions, they, the oppressors make the oppressed to cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the Almighty. Or not the Almighty, but of the mighty, the mighty oppressors. But why does he not hear? Because we're told he doesn't. Their cry, verse 12, they cry out, but none give answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not hear vanity and neither will the Almighty regard it. The evil men there is not the oppressor. The evil men is a lie whose judgment upon those who are crying out. That they themselves are proud. And their cries to him are, in verse 13, a vanity. Remember what a vanity is. It's a passing thing. It's not to say that it has no value. It's not to say that it's meaningless. That's a misunderstanding of the Hebrew. Uh, But it is, nevertheless, a vanity. It is a passing thing. Uh, They're considered proud because in joy and in their prosperity, they were ungrateful, and they were ungrateful for even basic benefits... Verse 11 and 12, but none saith, These oppressed. None saith, Where is God my Maker, who gives songs in the night? When I have refreshment, when I have relief from my oppression, uh, when I do find joy in the midst of my troubles, I'm not giving God the thanks, who teaches us more than the beast of the field and makes us wiser than the fowls of heaven. These are common and basic goods that all mankind has. We're not thankful to Him for those things. So why should God be concerned with us when we are troubled a little bit and we call out to Him? It's vanity because the Lord knows, just as well as anybody else knows, that the vast majority of those oppressed will lose their religion that they found in their troubles as soon as they lose their troubles. That their religion is only as... A constant and, and abides as long as they are troubled. That should, by the way, give us something to think about because we are troubled right now and we are calling out upon the Lord and it should be a good time of blessing in that, that hard kind of blessing that makes us firmer in our faith. But Jesus tells us that the seed will fall upon ground that is shallow, and it will wither away. Now, Heath mentions that it will wither away because hardships come. But those of you whose hardships cause it to grow, beware the next kind of ground, the thorns of the world, the, the love of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and prosperity. When the prosperity comes, does our cry cease? Because it does with some. But there is a faith that has, well, a hypocritical faith that has the show of faith that is unfruitful and is choked out by the world. Elihu is saying that this is the nature, but ultimately of Job. Job, when he was in prosperity, was, was well, he was actually faithful. But, but Elihu is kind of going with his friends that he forgot God. And, and now that he's troubled, he's not remembering God And the Lord is not remembering him uh, because uh, he is saying the things that he's saying. The Lord will not hear the impenitent sinner. Verse 14, Although thou sayest, thou shalt not see him. That was a complaint of Job. He didn't believe he would see him in this life. Yet judgment is before him. The Lord sees you. Therefore, trust thou in him. But now, because it is not so, that is, that you are not trusting in him. uh, Elihu's argument is different from his friend's. Elihu says he suffers still because he's right now being a hypocrite. That now because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger. Yet, and now he's referring back to Job, yet he knows not in great extremity. Job is not humbled, and therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain and multiply with words without knowledge. It tells us that the impenitent sinner Though he may cry to the Lord with all the right forms and all the forms of obedience that the Lord has given will nevertheless not be heard if his heart is not right. Obedience to the forms of prayer are still vain without the heart of prayer. Isaiah, uh, hearing the, the uh, accusation against Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 Verses 10 through 17 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah had long time been under the salt of the Dead Sea. But he's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to Jerusalem. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or he-goats, When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this of your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates and are a trouble unto me, and I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make my many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash ye and make ye clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless and plead for the widow. This is, by the way, what Jesus and the prophets also, the minor prophets said, I delight not in sacrifice but obedience. Not that God didn't command the sacrifices, but he commanded them to be given with heartfelt devotion unto the Lord. And when uh, they were just done as a form to cover disobedience and sin in the life, they were hypocrisy. And he delighted not in them. Even if they were done with exactness, he delighted not in them. If we are exact in our prayers unto God, and exact in our praises unto Him, and we are exact in our attention to give into the Word, but we do not do so with love and humility before the Lord, but as a cover for our sins, just to kind of uh, ease our conscience and nothing more, then God is not obligated to hear. Remember, God's not obligated to hear at all. He does so out of a grace and mercy and out of love to His people. He gives us these things. He gives us His law that we might know what's good for our life. That we might know how to be conformed unto the Lord. He doesn't do that only. He gives us the gospel and gospel ordinances, which in the Old Testament were the sacrifice system. In the New Testament is that which comes from the proclamation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gives that for our good. We don't, we're not bargaining him with him when we participate in it. And we're not drawing anything out of it when we don't do it with faith and love and devotion and humility before him. Now, it's not true that Job waited upon the Lord in hypocrisy. But it is true that the Lord is not obligated to hear a hypocrite. And Elihu is not wrong in the general, even when he is wrong in the application uh, to Job. James says, ask, ye ask, and ye receive not, James 4.3, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Sometimes God tells us no, sometimes God turns a deaf ear to us because he loves us. If it is sin, if sin is a ruination of you and me and not of the Lord and doesn't hurt him at all, if we are asking for things that would lead us unto sin, it is his love to us that turns a deaf ear to us. If Job had been seeking deliverance from his miseries simply that he might go back to a life of sin, it was good that God did not hear him. And we know that that was not the case at all. That Job sought the deliverance of the Lord and the vindication of the Lord for a life of faith. That he wanted to see the good that he trusted that the Lord would give. And that's a sermon for another time. Because it does cause us, we have to persevere. But it's also true that we won't persevere aright if we forget how much we owe the Lord and how little he owes us. We would not appreciate his love at all. And so as we consider Elihu's what the Lord owes us, let us also consider what we owe the Lord. If it's true that our sins don't hurt him and our righteousness doesn't do him good, that he could turn a deaf ear to us and not give us any sort of concern at all. Our attention. How much then does it show his wondrous love to us that he does give attention to us? That though Job doesn't see him, though we don't see him in our troubles, yet we are before him. And we are his concern. That the sparrows don't fall to the ground without his decree. It was not his need of us that moved him to send his son, Jesus Christ. John says quite plainly, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And John, well, Jesus to Nicodemus is very pointed to say that he comes to save and not condemn. We're already condemned. We deserve God's wrath. God could be apathetic and just cause us to cease to exist and we wouldn't even know that God said such a thing. We'd know nothing. God could throw us into the judgment of hell to exercise his judgment upon us for all eternity. And there is nothing that we could complain against. But he looks upon us as though unprofitable servants... As a people that he's willing to give himself for, even unto death. He binds us in love and by love. He binds himself to us. He gives us promises that, though he doesn't have to, because he didn't have to promise we can depend on and we can argue and wrestle with him we see job wrestling with the lord israel's the church's name is the one who wrestles with the lord we do so because he loved us and are we thankful do we appreciate this or do we some in our sin really wish god would have left us alone profitable religion then Profitable religion, our devotion to God that is good, is not going to improve God's situation. It's not going to take away from God's situation. We need to realize that. We need to be humble and grateful before him in all seasons. The problem with the oppressed in, in Elihu's speech was that they were only minded towards God when trouble came. We should look to God, our maker, when we are singing songs in the night, when we are in great joy, when we are at rest, when we are troubled, and when we consider just the the blessing of being a human being. All seasons, we should have something to be grateful to the Lord for. Even if it is that our troubles have not consumed us that we still have, we still breathe, and therefore we can still hope in his mercies even in this life. We also understand that practical religion, as James himself says at the end of chapter 1, is to love our neighbor. The fatherless and the widow is particularly singled out by him and the fear of the Lord. But the way that we love our Savior is by loving and doing right by his people, that is, one another in the church, and then as extends outward, because they are all potential, as far as we know, elect into the world with compassion. And finally, we persevere. Although thou sayest to, him, "You shall not see him, yet judgment is before him, therefore trust thou in him that we even when we can't see it because there's no point otherwise, when we can't see the good that the Lord does, we nevertheless trust that he does it because he has promised that he works all things, the crosses for the good of his people. When Jesus was on the cross and agonized under God's misery, why have you forsaken me? Yet he didn't turn against God Unto the Father commit I my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and died. He does what Job thinks he's capable of doing. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Jesus knew that we deserved that slaying. And in trust and love over his Father, he took it upon himself that we might be reconciled with our Father that we might persevere in the midst of hard times, but do so humbly, recognizing his love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask, dear Lord, that though you cast us down, that you would also lift us up in Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that we would, in all seasons, uh, give you thanks, that we would remember you that give us joy, And that we would recognize that our prosperity comes from your hand. That there is nothing that we give you that we did not receive a hundredfold from your hand already. But we ask, dear Lord, that we would not grow lax thereby. But that we would be moved by that wondrous love wherewith you loved us. we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.